Robert. Hi, everyone. I said after my sermon on Shabbat that I would record my sermon for you. Obviously, it's not going to have the same uh, passion and enthusiasm that I have on Shabbat, but I figured this way, at least for those of you who didn't hear it or for those of you who wanted to share it with others, you'll have the opportunity to do that. This past Friday, you probably heard about the verdict from the South African lawsuit in the International Court of Justice the, in The Hague, accusing Israel of genocide. It was also International Holocaust Memorial Day, the liberation of Auschwitz. And in our community, we celebrated the 90th birthday of Fischl Goldig, who is our community's Holocaust survivor, our Zaidi. And uh, we had the beautiful, beautiful celebration yesterday for him. And I wanted him to give the sermon, and he did give a, a beautiful talk during Kiddush. But he said, smilingly to me, Rabbi, I'm not taking your job. You have to give the sermon. And so this is the sermon that I gave in his honor, in honor of International Holocaust Memorial Day, and in honor of Fischl. What was fascinating, there's a lot of conversation in the Jewish community about, oh, the verdict wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. First of all, I think that is absolute nonsense. The whole idea that South Africa brought Israel to International Court of Justice to begin with is absolutely absurd. But what was fascinating to me is one of the key pieces of evidence that was presented was Prime Minister Netanyahu's statement after October 7th regarding Hamas. He quoted the verse in the Torah about Amalek. Remember what Amalek did to you. We remember and we will fight against Amalek. Now, I don't know if you've been following this, but since October 7th, which was Simchat Torah, every single week we have opened up the Torah starting from the Parsha of Bereshit, and we have looked into the Torah, and shockingly, I'm not even going to say so shockingly, because it's almost obvious, the Torah, written 3,300 years ago, plus, has within it a message for what's going on in Israel that particular week. Now, this verdict could have come out two weeks ago, and it could have come out next week, but it came out this week. And guess the story that is in this week's Torah portion, the story of Amalek. And here they are at The Hague talking about Prime Minister Netanyahu's reference to the Torah verse. Now, there's many different parshas in the Torah, and that verse is in this week's Torah portion. Additionally, in a letter to the soldiers, the Prime Minister reiterated a call once again, he keeps on saying this, to remember Amalek. They showed a video of, of soldiers dancing to the words, wiping out Amalek, and statements from members of the Knesset saying that we have to eradicate Amalek. Now, who is this Amalek? A lot of people who are not familiar with the Torah, or maybe 
a little familiar with the Torah, don't exactly know the story of Amalek. And, and, and why is the Hague Tribunal so obsessed with Amalek? In this week's Torah portion, we read that Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, let's set the, the conversation and, and the story of what's going on for the Jewish people. The Jewish people had just left Egypt. God had split the sea for them and performed miracles that shook the entire civilized world. God provided them with manna from heaven, brought forth water from a rock. Things were, let's just say, hunky-dory for the Jews. People also knew about the ten plagues. They knew about the splitting of the sea. They knew that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were at the top, and people were afraid. And just when everything seems to be settling, they hear that Amalek is coming to attack. Now, who was Amalek? Amalek, the man, was actually the grandson of Esau. Esau was the brother, the twin brother of our forefather Jacob, of Yaakov. And Jacob passed away close to 200 years before the Exodus, and Esau did as well. However, during his lifetime, Esau managed to pass on to his grandson, Amalek, the, the hatred, the absolute hatred that he harbored for Jacob. And Amalek didn't forget what his grandfather, Esau, Esau had taught him. He actually remembered it, and the hatred only intensified. Now, Amalek had many descendants, and in a short period, he established a huge tribe called the Amalekites, and he passed on the hatred from generation to generation, generational hatred. As long as the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt, Amalek wasn't exactly a factor in their lives, but the moment they became free, the moment they tasted freedom, Amalek who actually lived in the area of modern-day Elat. They came all the way to the Sinai Desert for one reason and one reason only, to attack the Jews. Now, the Jews weren't planning on approaching the Amalekites. They actually had no conflict over land. They had no conflict at all with them. Amalek traveled a long distance just to attack the Jews. It was an attack that was born out of pure evil, without any other motives, just to harm them for the sake of causing harm. Amalek knew that they would pay a high price for the attack. Even Egypt who at the time was the global superpower, paid a very high price for causing trouble. But they felt compelled to come. They knew the result. They knew this wasn't smart, but they came anyway. The Torah says that Amalek happens upon the Jewish people. Asher karcha baderech, that's the Hebrew. And the, the Midrash explains what does it mean that they happened upon the Jewish people, that they would hide and they would ambush and attack suddenly. Now, think about it. They knew that they attacked suddenly, ambushing, 
they knew this wasn't going to be smart and the Jews would attack, would fight back. Sounds familiar? There's a, um, a fascinating commentary. His name is Rabbi Eliezer Hamodai. And he says, actually, that the, Am- the Amalekites, they would sneak into where the Jewish people were living and they would kidnap. They would kidnap the Jews and then kill them. They would literally take hostages. This is what the Torah is telling us in this week's Torah portion about Amalek. Now, Moses told Joshua, Joshua was his trusted student and later his successor, to select a fighting force to combat the attackers. And Moses would go up on top of the hill on Mount Sinai and he would pray for for the victory of the Israelites. And the Torah recounts in our Parsha, that, that Joshua weakened Amalek and his people at the edge of the sword. And clearly, he didn't score an absolute victory. And then God commands Moses, write this as a testament and place this in the ears of Joshua. I will surely wipe out the memory of Amalek. And later on in the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah records this as a mitzvah. That every single day, and it's something that those who pray every day, we have six remembrances. And one of the remembrances is to remember what Amalek did to you. And that was the final quote in what Prime Minister Netanyahu said in his speech. Now, the next time we encounter Amalek is actually in the book of Samuel, where God commands King Saul to go and conquer Amalek and leave no one alive. What actually happened was Saul didn't fulfill God's command to its entirety. He showed, for some reason, mercy on King Agag, and he spared him. Many generations have passed since then, and the Amalekite people have assimilated with other nations, rendering this command impossible. Even though the Torah says that we really can't do anything because we don't know who the Amalekites are. I mean, there's stories about Haman being an Amalekite and the story of, of Purim with Ed and the story of Esther, or maybe even people say that Hitler, I mean, they say these things, but we don't know who the Amalekites are today. So what is the underlying meaning of the command to remember Amalek? What are we supposed to remember? And I think the answer can be found in our Torah portion. Just one verse before the story about Amalek. It says, And Moses called the name of the place Masa and Meriva, because of the quarrel, Meriva, quarrel, of the the Israelites, because they tested God, Masa, saying, Is God among us or not? The people had doubt. They weren't sure. And Rashi actually explains this to serve as an introduction and an explanation for the war with Amalek. It happened because, as Rashi says, there were Jews who had doubts as to whether God was with them. Now, it's very strange. God took them out of Egypt, split the sea for them, ten plagues, provided them with manna from heaven, gave them water from a rock. These are people who experienced open miracles from God, and they're not sure whether God is with them. 
Rashi brings rather a, a poignant parable from the rabbis of the Midrash. He tells the story about a man who carries his son on his shoulders and he sets out on a journey. And the son sees an object and asks his father to pick it up for him. And the father gives it to him. And the same happens twice more. And eventually they meet a man on the way and the son suddenly turns to that man and says, tell me, did you see my father? The father replies, you don't know where I am? I'm carrying you. He throws the child down and the dog comes and bites the child. It's, it's a, I'm not going to go into the parable itself. But the fact is that the Jewish people had, had doubts about God's presence. And that caused them to lose a special protection they had. And as a result, Amalek attacks them. Now, what does it have to do with me and you? That's really what I wanted to get to in all of this. In, in Hasidic thought, in Kabbalistic thought, a malek has the same numerical value as the word safek, which in Hebrew means doubt. Now, every single letter in Hebrew has a numerical equivalent. Aleph, which is the first letter, is one and so on. And so a malek has the same numerology as the word safek, as the word doubt. The, the spiritual Amalek that we're commanded to always be aware of is doubt. Many times people tell me that they were taught in Hebrew school that Judaism is not about blind faith. In other religions, you have to accept everything. And if you ask questions, you get thrown out. But in Judaism, questioning is encouraged. There was a great story of the physicist, Isidore Isaac Rabi, who won the Nobel Prize in physics in the 60s. And they asked him, how did you, a child of immigrants, a Jew, how did you end up winning the Nobel Prize? And he smiled and he said, you know, most kids come home and if their parent even speaks to them at all after school, they say, oh, did you have a good day? How was your day? My mother, in her native Yiddish, every single day when I came home from school, she would look at me and she would say, Isidore, Isidore, did you ask any good questions today? In English, a question means to ask, but questioning means to challenge. I think there's a very big difference between asking and questioning. Asking questions is to understand the meaning of the text is to understand the meaning of the teaching it's it's positive and it's necessary to understand and to learn and to grow and to become the great person that the torah wants us to be but a challenge to challenge is to express doubts whether the torah is true whether god is true and that in judaism is not encouraged if a person has doubts in faith Answers may not always satisfy them because doubts come from a different place. Now, when we think about the war in Israel, when we think of what's going on right now since October 7th, one of our primary challenges is the spiritual Amalek. Many young people in Israel, and especially abroad, young Jews on college campuses and 
all over the world today, they lack this internal conviction that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. Deep inside, they're unsure about the just cause of the state of Israel. Maybe the land does belong to the Palestinians. After all, they were there before 1948, and apparently nothing happened before 1948. Uh, The UN approved giving the Jews a part of the land in 1948, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. I've heard this from a lot of young Jews. Lord Balfour's declaration in 1917 supporting the establishment of a national homeland for the Jewish people, it doesn't grant us the right to expel the Arabs. I mean, unfortunately, this is the narrative that a lot of the Western media has been talking about. And young people, especially young people in universities, they're getting this very strong sentiment. And they're questioning if maybe... You know, they, they were talking about Madagascar, or they were talking about Uganda. Well, why don't we just go there? Why, why go back to Israel? And some people in the Jewish community feel like occupiers. They feel like the Jews are, are colonists. They're, they're, they're out for colonialism. And they lack the internal conviction to fight for the Jewish homeland. And when people say that Jewish students in in, in American and Canadian university campuses are struggling to defend Israel, it's not merely a lack of information. It goes much deeper. I think a lot of people today, they're not convinced of the righteousness of the cause. Deep down, they fear that maybe the Palestinians are right. It's interesting. The Rebbe used to always refer to the state of Israel as Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. He wrote a letter in 1969 to President Shazar, and he explained to him why he uses this term. And he said that something established in 1948 by the will or approval of the nations of the world holds no validity and substance to answer the claims of the Arabs and the Vatican and the UN and the Canaanites, is what the Rebbe said, both open and hidden, that we stole the land. The Rebbe knew this in 1969. He said, if if basically, if the state is a new entity born in 1948, then we don't have a valid answer to the Arabs' claim that we expelled them from their homeland. And the Rebbe continued, he said, I don't delude myself that arguments of of justice and, and righteousness will convince the UN and the Vatican, but it's absolutely critical for the morale of the soldiers and the university students in American colleges that the narrative be different. In a letter that the Rebbe wrote to M.K. Geula Cohen, the Rebbe continued explaining this. He said to her that Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, was given to the Jewish people from the Almighty in a covenant with our forefather Abraham. In exchange for the name Canaan, or Canaan, 
The name Eretz Yisrael was, was firmly established thousands of years ago, both in the Torah and among the people. From young to old, matters like these are not subject to votes. They're not subject to majority decisions, which can change from time to time. Changing this name, he says, weakens the claim of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. A new name indicates that the entire matter began in 1948. And by implication, the Rebbe concludes, also the claim and ownership of Eretz Yisrael starts then. The sole foundation for our right to the land of Israel lies in its connection to the Torah. This unique claim is rooted in the divine promise that's made to Abraham, that's made to Isaac, that's made to Jacob, assuring this land for their descendants. And for those who lack this belief, who lack this connection to the Torah, defending the idea that the land belongs to us generally becomes a formidable challenge. So the way to challenge the spiritual Amalek, the way to challenge the doubt in our generation is through positive connections to Judaism. It's shocking, but not so shocking if you're aware that the International Court of Justice this week is talking about Amalek. And in this week's Torah portion, the conversation is about Amalek. I think that by just looking at the Torah and looking at our connection to the land for 2,000 years, our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, they prayed three times a day and they faced Jerusalem. There was only one reason why they weren't there in Jerusalem is that's because they were expelled time and again exiled from their land. For 2,000 years, they never forgot Jerusalem. For 2,000 years, every single time, there was a chuppah, a marriage, a beautiful new family starting for the Jewish people. They would break a glass. Do you know why they break the glass? Today, we still break the glass. To remember Jerusalem. To remember our homeland. And finally, after 2,000 years, we're back. We're back to our ancestral homeland. It didn't start in 1948. That was just our return to the place that we were exiled from, the place that we dreamt of. Our great-grandparents, they only dreamt that one day they could go back. And there I was on Shabbat celebrating with Fischl, a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor who remembers vividly the horrors that he went through during the Holocaust and his the promise of never again. And Fischl stood up in front of our shul crying, saying, they promised me never again. And here I am. He said, I saw it when I was nine, and now I'm 90, and I saw it again. And so to Fischl and to all others, we must stand strong. We cannot let 
the Amalek within us win. We cannot allow any doubt to be within us. We have to remember that this is a land that we were given almost 4,000 years ago. And we lived in it and thrived in it. And then we were chased away. But every single day, three times a day, we faced it, we prayed for it, we cried for it. Once a year, on Tisha B'Av, we sat on the floor, we fasted, something we still do. And we hope that one day we'd be back. And today, I am honored that in my generation, in our generation, we can go. And as Jews today, right now, we can pray at the site of our temple. And part of our prayer is that very soon the third temple be rebuilt and that we enter an era of peace and tranquility. We don't want suffering. We don't want war. That's not what anybody wants. There's not one person in Israel that can tell you they want war. They want peace. We want to be able to live together. We pray a prayer that we've also been saying for over 2,000 years. We pray for an era of peace, for the era of the Mashiach, where there's no suffering, where the swords turn into plowshares, where we're able to live together. And may that be, may that day come immediately. And Hashem should bless every single one of us as you, we listen and we experience and we connect, that we should be able to be part of that solution, the real solution. And that is that by our mitzvahs, by our good deeds, by our pursuit of peace, that together we can be able to live in a world that is truly full of peace. And there should be no more Amalek in our lives. We should remember Amalek, remember meaning, oh, remember, there used to be evil in the world. That's the kind of Amalek we should remember. Oh, remember, uh, there was a thing, but not today. Today we live in a world of peace. That's the dream. And that's what we hope every single day and pray for every single day. I wish you all a wonderful week, a week filled of smiles, a week filled with good deeds, a week filled with caring about one another and wanting and hoping and praying that the 136 hostages, that the innocent lives that are still being held in Gaza, they should be returned immediately, immediately, every single one of them, innocent people. And the world, we and those around us should cry out for them saying, why are they not back already? Being held for over a hundred days, innocent people. And may this war end, and may we enter an era of peace, and may it be this week. Thank you for spending this time with me. May we be able to continue and spend these wonderful moments together.